worked very, very hard to re-articulate the benefits and the value of membership, how important that AIS is as a partner for you as you head towards your career, whether it is as a licensed architect or whether it is if you want to become a landscape architect or an interior designer or something in an architecture adjacent field, we are there to help expose our students to those things as well. But we also were able to start connecting them to each other and to professionals face to face again. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Larry Hoffer, Executive Director of the American Institute of Architecture Students, or AIS. Hey, Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Larry, tell us about AIS. AIS is a 67-year-old organization that is for architecture students, and it's run by architecture students. We started out as part of the American Institute of Architects, but we became a fully independent organization in the 70s. What's really unique about our organization is several things, but the most important is that our board is 97% students or recent graduates of architecture school. Ah. And even more than that, our president and vice president, they are recent college graduates. They move to D.C. and work on our staff for a year as president and vice president. So essentially, we get two new staff people every year, which is a little bit chaotic and sad when they leave. But it's a tremendously interesting and energizing opportunity for the office, too. So every year, the new president and vice president of the association come to work for you. But because they're president and VP of the board, you kind of technically also report to them. So how does this work? <laughs> it is a very, very interesting model. So I technically report through the president and vice president to the entire board. And we have individuals, professionals who represent other architecture-related organizations on our board as well. So they comprise a personnel committee, which technically oversees the evaluation of the executive director. But yes, I technically supervise my bosses, which is not an experience that everybody gets every day. Wow. But it's fun. 
Larry, so every year you get a 20-something who's just out of school who hopefully is bringing the perspective of being an architecture student, bringing a lot of fresh energy, but you're also in the position of training them often in their first jobs. Yes, I think that that is a really exciting opportunity for me as a mentor and a leader, but it isn't without its challenges. I think that what we see mostly is that the individuals who are elected president and vice president are focused on what they want to accomplish and understand the organization and how they would like to improve it. And I think that it's tremendously valuable because they speak the language of our members Ah. more so than anything, because they literally, in many cases, have just graduated within months or at most a year of taking this position. So they get elected in January, they come down in July and spend a month of overlap with the current president and vice president. And then on August 1st, their term officially begins. And then we lock the old president and vice president out. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But it's just this very, very unique and collaborative opportunity. And what we find quite often is that the architecture students who become the president and vice president get exposed to nonprofit management, which is something that Nobody learns that in college. Right. You don't seek that out. I mean, most people don't even know what associations are. So... I think that it's a really valuable opportunity. And and what we hear quite often when the president and vice president leave their jobs is, well, maybe if you need somebody, I can come back and work here someday or whatever. Neat. So it's fun. It's fun to see who actually becomes practicing architects and who decides to move into either an architecture adjacent field, like we call it, or something completely different. Boy, what an amazing experience for those alums. Yeah. Hey, you're also part of something bigger that you call the Alliance, which is kind of like a coalition or alliance of architecture organizations. So are there a lot of you in this ecosystem and why create an alliance? So we have an alliance with five other organizations, the American Institute of Architects, the National Organization of Minority Architects, the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture the National Architectural Accrediting Board, and the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards. So we sort of run the gamut from architecture students to professionals to those teaching architecture in colleges to the accrediting body that accredits collegiate programs and the organization that oversees licensure. So together, it's a pretty powerful group of organizations. It's been around for a long time. The key is finding the areas where we can all work together. And in a lot of cases, there's sort of two of us or three of us partner on specific things. But particularly in the area of K through 12 outreach and building the future of the architecture profession, that's something we all are focused on. And so we get together as the execs of those organizations every other month. And then the leadership of those organizations get together twice a year. And in fact, we're getting together next week to have an alliance meeting with the presidents and presidents-elect of the other organizations and ours. And it's always a really energizing experience because there's just so much 
incredible brain power in that room looking at how to make the architecture profession stronger and more accessible to everyone, which it hasn't traditionally been. Boy, talk about really getting perspectives from the entire ecosystem. That's amazing. It is. And it's a real privilege to be a part of it. But also, I think it just is an incredible opportunity for our student officers to get the opportunity to articulate their views and the needs of students to these organizations representing the professional end of the profession. I think that that is just a really, really terrific chance for them to get the confidence that they need to perhaps speak to people who are twice or three times their age. Sorry, I'm not saying that anybody on the Alliance is actually that old now. But um, <laughs> so it's a great experience organizationally, but also it's a tremendous opportunity from a professional development standpoint. Wow. Hey, so before we talk about the things that AIS is doing to thrive, and thriving you are, let's talk about your journey. How did you get to become executive director of an organization where your president changes every year and he or she works for you? Wow. I honestly wouldn't have ever imagined that piece of it. I probably actually wouldn't have imagined any of it when I first started. I'm the oldest Jewish boy in my family. And so the Torah mandates that you usually become a lawyer or a doctor. Oh. And the medical field was out after seventh grade. And so I thought to myself, I'll be a lawyer. And I went to George Washington University and I majored in criminal justice. And so it was the path. And as I was getting ready to graduate, I realized I had no idea why I wanted to be a lawyer, except that I had been told that I needed to be. And oh. so I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I had worked retail throughout college. So I didn't have any office experience. And so I interviewed for AA jobs all over the place and found an employment agency that had an opportunity at a patent processing law firm. And they brought me in and I interviewed and I felt like, okay, this could be a really interesting opportunity. And then I get a call that said that the firm had a hiring freeze. But the woman who ran the agency said, but I'm going to find you something. And so she brought me to an association and that she placed administrative assistance in. And so I started at the American Association of Blood Banks. Oh, my God, that's one of my clients. See? I think we could do that. The who's who of <laughs> Joanna's clients. I was hired to run the subscriptions of their medical journal. And it took me two hours a day to do the job that they hired. And I didn't oh. know what to do. And my mother said, don't tell them that. You're going to lose your job. And so they asked me what else I like to do. And I said that I like to write. And so they gave me the opportunity to write for association publications. And when I got my second job, I worked for the American Association of Family and Consumer Sciences. And my bosses were both longtime association executives. I started asking questions about the things I was writing about. Like, tell me about bylaws and how do bylaws revisions work? Like, how does that work? And my executive director and deputy executive director realized they had a live one. Someone interested in governance. Yeah, I mean, that is honestly the thing that has always fascinated me most about associations. So they gave me tremendous opportunities in the three years that I was there. And it was at that point that I realized that someday I wanted to be the executive director of an association. So my journey, as it were, from there 
I basically moved from association to association over time, collecting experience, Mm. learning how to do conference planning, learning to do finance, learning to do HR. So I was fortunate enough to become the chief of staff at the Association of Science and Technology Centers, an international organization representing science museums. My boss gave me that opportunity. Chief of staff positions didn't really exist in the association world then. Right, right. But he was a government employee at one point. So that's what he understood. And I had the opportunity to essentially run all of the internal functions of the organization. I moved us from one part of DC to another, which, you know, took a couple of years off my life for sure. Yes. And built teams and built structure. So when the opportunity came, To get an executive director job for the first time, I was very well prepared. And I was the executive director of the Woodworking Machinery Industry Association for almost seven years. And that job ended during the pandemic, like sadly so many did. Yeah, I did a brief interim exec assignment at the Association of Children's Museums as they did a search for a permanent executive director. And then a year ago, had the great fortune of this opportunity. I have worked with student groups at numbers of associations in different ways, whether it's training student leaders, identifying and strengthening student chapters, providing scholarship and mentorship opportunities. So this was a real marriage of what I love to do, plus the association management side of it. So I remember thinking, so the students work for me, but I work for them. And I thought about it a lot, but ultimately I was so energized by the possibilities that AIS presented. And obviously I convinced them that I was the right person for the job, despite the fact that it's been a very long time since I've been a student. (laughs) Well, Larry, they hired you at a time when the organization was struggling. Like many associations, AIS was struggling because of the pandemic, because I guess a great deal of your revenue comes from events from conferences and your members like to get together. So Larry, tell us about the first year. How did you stabilize things? And then how are you thriving? So what's going on? You're absolutely right. The pandemic definitely affected AIS in a number of ways. So many students did not want more virtual opportunities to talk to people. They wanted face-to-face opportunities, which were nearly non-existent during the pandemic. And so what we saw was a lot of student chapters folded, membership dropped. We did have virtual conferences and they were fairly well attended, but nobody wanted to do them. Also, it was a struggle for partnerships as well. I mean, how many times can you creatively sell the same thing? So I was hired basically shortly after the association adopted a two-year strategic plan The two major goals of the strategic plan were to stabilize the organization and then to pivot it. So I recognized that there were a lot of things that needed to be fixed. The first was stopping the burnout that was happening with such a small staff. Mm. The president and vice president who were in office when I was hired, as well as the interim executive director of the organization who had worked for the association for six years prior, and the interim director of membership and marketing, who had been the vice president the year before. So this is gives you an idea of how we had to cobble things together. 
they had to do the work of so many people. They held the organization together. Hmm. They kept it alive. And without those four individuals, this organization might not have existed. I was determined to not have that same burnout. And so the first thing I was committed to was creating a stronger and larger staff to be able to deliver programs. We had the president and vice president doing things that they weren't really prepared to do. It was a completely different journey for them than they thought. They didn't get to visit student chapters. They didn't get to do the kind of member-to-member outreach that they were looking forward to, but they were running actual programs. That can't be sustainable, especially when you have new presidents and vice presidents coming in every year. So in the first year, I hired three new people. We identified as a staff where our our vacancies were the the most important things. We hired a manager of social media and communications. Social media is where our students live. Right, right. If we're going to attract members and engage members, we had to do a better job. And social media was one of those things that everybody was sort of doing little pieces of, and that's, you know, not truly effective. And then we hired a director of programs and education to run a lot of our programs. And so now we have a director of membership and marketing who is a former member of the organization. So the person that runs membership understands membership better than almost anybody. And then you have the president and vice president who have recently graduated from architecture school who know what our members want or speak the language of our members. And half the staff are not architects. So we drive a lot of the programmatic work while our vice president is focused on membership growth and member chapter growth, as well as she's also the treasurer. So there's a lot of juggling that goes on. So speaking of the treasurer, Larry, you came in, you added staff. It's a pandemic. How do you fund it? How do you make sure it's sustainable, right? Because that's the big challenge for organizations. I mean, if you dip into reserves, you can't do that forever. True. Hopefully, you've got a plan for then increasing revenue. So tell us about what you're doing there. We did. And fortunately, again, the organization really cut back to almost nothing. So there wasn't a lot of money being spent. So we had money in the bank to be able to pay for those positions. I waited a little while, too, to see how membership was growing, to see how our conferences were doing. We had our first face-to-face conference last summer. It's called Grassroots. It's our usually our leadership training conference, but we just sort of made it a kind of all-purpose conference. We had 350 students attend, which is the largest audience for that conference in a very long time. And the energy that came from that conference has literally sustained us from last July to now. So what did you do differently that so many more students attended? Because that just doesn't happen. Well, part of it was just the fact that we were offering the opportunity for them to get together with each other, to connect with each other. In some of these cases, they hadn't met students at other schools, if ever, in three or four years since the last time we had face-to-face conferences. What's unique about AIS is because we represent students, the lifespan of our membership is, you know, three to five years for the most part. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. So our membership 
needs and wants are constantly changing and everything is new every three to five years for our members. So just the idea of having conferences has been enough of an initial appeal. But what we did was we worked very, very hard to re-articulate the benefits and the value of membership, how important that AIS is as a partner for you as you head towards your career, whether it is as a licensed architect, or whether it is if you want to become a landscape architect or an interior designer or something in an architecture adjacent field, we are there to help expose our students to those things as well. But we also were able to start connecting them to each other and to professionals face to face again. So doing all of those things, as well as reaching out to our members and saying, what do you want from us? Ah. Because again, you can't rest on your laurels. We're not an organization where the members have been there for 30 or 40 years and you know what they want. This totally changed. And so understanding what they wanted, more professional opportunities, more opportunities to hone their portfolios and their interview skills, to know not only how to prepare themselves for interviews at architecture firms, but what questions they should be asking when they're looking for a job or an internship. So our staff has just been working so, so hard this last year. And we have just seen the benefits of that. For us, our membership was around 2,900, 3,000 the last couple of years. And again, we start from zero at the start of the academic calendar year every year. We're just about at 3,800 members now. Wow. And we got together as a staff in August before we hired our two new members and had a strategic retreat. And what we said was we budgeted for no net gain in members. So if we wind up with 2,990 or 3,000 paid members, we're great. Let's go for 3,300. Let's make that our stretch goal. Wow. So we've exceeded our stretch goal. And the membership year is not over. We're in the middle of quad conference season. So we're seeing more members come in for that. And, you know, I think it sets us up really, really well on a next stage of developing more programs and having more open dialogue through focus groups with our members about really what they want to see. And also, we have high school members who join the organization for free, and they are learning and connecting and we want to do a better job of ensuring that that pipeline really does lead to membership in the future. Obviously, not everyone that is interested in being an architect in high school actually goes to architecture school, but we want to be sure that those that do feel connected with AIS already so that they're more likely to join and tell their friends about us when they get to school. So, Larry, you say that what your members wanted was to be together again. So you've got a couple of large national conferences, but you talked about quad conferences. So what are those? So our membership is divided into four quadrants is what it's called. The Northeast, the South, the Midwest, and the West. We also have a very rapidly growing international presence, and we have been charged with developing an international conference in 2024 to serve that. The growth, particularly in the Middle East and Latin America, has been fantastic. The board members who represent those regions 
have done a phenomenal job in helping with that outreach. But right now we have four regional conferences. So we've never done four at the same time before. We used to split them and do two in the fall and two in the spring. The quad conferences are hosted by a school. The students put together a bid and the bids are voted on by the students in that quad. We made the decision this year that we would do things a little bit differently. These students understand the conference experience and what they want to see and are great at identifying content and speakers and tours in their area. But we didn't want them to have the burden of meeting planning responsibilities. So we as staff took on those responsibilities and empowered the students to actually create the content. Oh, neat. So we had our first quad conference last weekend in Milwaukee. It was for our Midwest conference hosted by the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. 160 plus students, just a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. Wow. Our West conference is in Phoenix this weekend, hosted by Arizona State University. And then we have two the last week of March, one in the Northeast at Marywood University in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and one in the South at SCAD in Savannah. The students have just done a phenomenal job in marketing, in sponsorship, in program development, and we have great numbers for all of the conferences. And again, it's just a great opportunity. None of these students, or a very, very small number, have ever been to a face-to-face quad conference before. We did one last spring in Atlanta, but not a lot of students outside that quad attended. So this is a whole new experience for these students. And we've already heard from two or three schools in our Midwest quad that they're interested in bidding next year. Nice. So Larry, what you're doing with the quad conferences, sort of like what you're doing with the organization, is really pairing up professionals with the students and really taking advantage of the skills perspective and experiences of both parties. So you're saying, look, we got professional meeting planners who will handle the logistics, but you guys handle the marketing and the programming because you know as students what other students want. That's an amazing model. Exactly. And there's certainly going to be things that we're going to need to improve when we do this again next year, but it's just seemed to work really, really well because they don't have to worry about food. Right. What's their food minimum? They don't have to worry about hotel blocks. Insurance. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And again, when you have college students, we have to be obviously the ones working with the venues where our events are to check IDs if alcohol is served and things like that. So they can't really do that anyway. And they would have to spend money on security and things like that that they don't need to. Right. So it's been a terrific opportunity. And again, not every member can travel to D.C. or to travel to where our other conferences are. It's a lot easier for them to be able to get into a car and drive a couple of hours or a short flight or train ride to a conference in their region. So this gives them the taste of the AIS experience that we hope then will help them both want to get involved in the organization, but also want to go to more events. Larry, during our prep session, you said that one of the things that you're proudest of is your partnership with BetterHelp. So talk to us about that, because it's in some ways unrelated to architecture and being an architecture student. 
It is, but I am the proudest of that, of the accomplishments that we've had over this last year. I mean, obviously membership growth is fantastic and the engagement level of our members is great. Architecture school is really, really hard. I never understood that because I'm definitely not an architect. You have to learn how to take criticism and sometimes it's not always nice. There are very, very long hours. Your computer crashes a lot because of the software that you use. And it's a very, very competitive environment. So we as an organization have always been committed to the mental health and well-being of students, architecture students. But when the opportunity to partner with BetterHelp crossed my mind, it was something I leapt on. So what we do is we provide our students four free online therapy sessions through BetterHelp with licensed therapists, no matter where they are in the world, which was the important thing for me too, since we have international members and I didn't want to disadvantage them. You know, in whatever language, they can choose what type of therapist they want, what issues they want to talk about. They can actually share the code with their roommates who might not even be architecture students. Ah. And they get four free sessions. And then if they want to continue that relationship, they get a 15 to 30% discount on the therapy sessions. That allows us to not only say how important mental health and well-being of architecture students is, we demonstrate that. And I've heard from students about how grateful they are that this benefit exists. It's a completely anonymous thing. We provide the students with a code. I never know who takes advantage of it and who doesn't. All I know are the numbers. And it was so important to me that I offer that as a benefit to our AIS staff as well. Larry, is it being used? It is. We launched the benefit right before the end of 2022, right at the time when students were getting ready for finals and studio, and some who were graduating in the winter were getting ready to walk. And we already saw an enormous participation level probably because of the timing. And I'm getting so many students asking for that their code be resent now because they're just hearing about it or just realizing it. And it takes a level of vulnerability to have to email the executive director of your organization who you might not know and say, can you send me the better help code? But I'm thrilled when I get those emails because not only are students taking advantage of it, but I just understand the benefit of that. And I'm just happy if I can help them or help their roommates or help anybody, then we've done our job. So Larry, it sounds like you're not just thinking about the professional development of your students, but you're really thinking about them as whole individuals, including their mental health, so that they become successful professionals, if you will. What an amazing benefit. It really is. I mean, AIS has been committed to ensuring that what we refer to as the learning and teaching culture in architecture schools becomes healthier and becomes less toxic. We have a learning and teaching culture policy that we share with schools and our schools that have student chapters have to agree to abide to that. Hang on. So is this like in hospitals where residents can't work 100 hours a week? Right. Among other things. So architectural school, you're saying, is toxic. It can be. It can be toxic. 
because it's so competitive. It's a grinding workload. Grinding workload. There's a tremendous amount of pressure, but also you have to start thinking about internships and things fairly early on. And you have to have a strong belief in yourself. I mean, it's just like if you're a writer or a designer, you're going to get criticized. Right. You're going to have an instructor who is going to tell you, no, that's not good. And sadly, those instructors in any type of creative program aren't always the nicest in telling you, no, that's not good. I want to be sure that I am not painting the architecture school in general with a broad brush of being toxic, but there has been a history of that issue in architecture school, which is why the mental health, as well as the physical health of architecture students is so important. And our incoming president and vice president will take office in August. The theme of their year is what they're calling unrest. So it's exploring both rest and unrest. So rest, meaning the physical and mental health and internal satisfaction with yourself. And unrest is never being satisfied with the status quo. And so we are putting the mental and physical well-being of our students on the forefront of what AIS does in addition to everything else. Wow, that is beautiful. Hey, before we close out, I have a new question that I'm asking my guests. Cool. Larry, what is your superpower? My superpower is my belief in the value of associations and the difference that associations make, the power of associations, which obviously is something that ASAE speaks of so eloquently. I believe that associations exist to make the world and to make people better. And I've always believed that no matter what organization I've worked for. And I want the members of those organizations to understand the value that that organization does. So I think that my passion for AIS and associations in general, my passion for the value that AIS has for architecture students and the profession at large, I think is one of a few superpowers that I have. (laughs) Well, that is beautiful. And, you know, I'm heartened by that because That's actually why I started the podcast, because I wanted to celebrate successful associations and share with the rest of the association and nonprofit community the things they're doing to be successful and to thrive. So, Larry, congratulations on what you've done at AIS, and I hope you'll come back and share with us the next set of things that you're doing for your students. I would be more than happy to. Thanks so much, Joanna. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.